welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Okay, let me invite you to turn in Philippians uh, chapter 2. We've been doing a series on... Uh, the book of Philippians and uh, joy and on joy and mission together, and uh, so today we're coming to a, a section that I think is extremely important, and I didn't realize how much until I started studying it, and I had a, an extra week to think about some things in it. Um, but let me invite you to stand if you're willing and able, and we're going to read Philippians chapter two, verses one through eleven. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness that we may be thoroughly and completely equipped for every good work. Let's pray and ask God to bless us as we continue to look at his word this morning. There are times, uh, Father, when we admit to you that your word falls on deaf ears. We're too busy. We're too preoccupied. Uh, We are too consumed with ourselves. But there are other times when your word breaks through all the internal clutter and the noise, the things that we have set up for ourselves that occupy us so much. And we pray this morning would be one of those times that you would break through all the internal noise, the fears, the anxieties, uh, the boredom that we sometimes feel when we come into worship. And we pray instead that we would have the sense that you are having a conversation with us through this passage by the power of your spirit. We pray that we would be able to commune with you, that we would be able to repent before you, and that as a result we would be transformed uh, because of what we hear and what we, uh, how it impacts us today. Would you bless us and would you be with us? And Lord, I pray that you would be with me. Um, you know how weak I am, even more than I do. Uh, you know how my mind is scattered. You know how my heart runs amok. Um, But I pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to help me to focus in on talking about something that is not just significant for me to say, but significant for me to hear. Would you bless me, and would you bless all of us who are in here, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 
Have a seat and make yourself comfortable. I had the opportunity when working with college students to have several interns that work with me. And uh, there was this one intern who mocked me and belittled me for everything and anything. Just, they just didn't seem to enjoy doing it. And it didn't matter what it was. It could be the movies I enjoyed. It could be the music I listened to. It could be the way that I dressed. It could be the things that I ate. He, well, we all mock my hair, but that's beside the point. And so he would just do this relentlessly. And, and you know, we, he would do it in a group of people. And, you know, everybody, would, I would be the butt of people's jokes. And you don't want to be that guy who can't take a joke. So I'd laugh along and just like play along with it. Like, okay, yeah, that's funny. And uh, so one day he came to me and he'd been with us for almost two years at this point. He came to me and he said he was thinking about being a, a, a pastor. And so I, you know, I'd been around him enough where I thought this is not gonna be a good fit for him. So I, I said, uh, you know, you, I, I, that might be something you wanna maybe te- be a teacher or a professor or something, but I, I'm not sure that being a, a pastor is something that you may want to do. And uh, his response was something along the lines, this is the way it came across, was, Stephen, if you can do this, how hard can it possibly be? <laughs> and I'll say, and I know this in our denomination is that you have to take a series, you have to take exams to find out whether you're qualified. So there you have to have a lot of, a breadth of knowledge about a variety of things. And uh, so I say, well, you know, we have this in our denomination. Let me just take you through an example of an exam. So I started asking him questions that he couldn't answer. And so when I'd ask the question, he couldn't answer it, I would answer it. And uh, this went on and on and on. And uh, I think he was probably pretty embarrassed and pretty humiliated by the whole experience of that. And then he left. And, and after he left, I had some, a, an opportunity to kind of sit with my own thoughts for a little bit and think about what just happened, you know, that he was probably pretty embarrassed and ashamed at the end of that. And you know how I felt? I felt awesome. I put that little punk in his place. <laughs> It was awesome. And then the Holy Spirit showed up. And it wasn't so awesome. And all of a sudden, I felt really convicted about the way that I had not loved him in the midst of that. And what the Holy Spirit showed me was that, in the, uh, that what he was doing to me that made me feel so small, I did that right back to him without love in my heart. And as we're talking about this passage uh, this week, uh, we're talking about humility, and the reason we're talking about humility is because pride and arrogance absolutely destroy community. They absolutely destroy it, and Paul knows this. So Paul states his desire for the church in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. He talks about being of the same mind, having the same love. In other words, he's talking about being united, to be in community with other Christians particularly. And Paul knows that pride and arrogance destroy unity, and so we need to spend some time talking about that pride and arrogance, but particularly about humility. And we're going to talk about three things. Uh, Humility, why do we need it? What is it? And then how do we get it? Uh, We see this kind of lack of humility quite a bit, and so why do we need it? We need humility because humility is completely necessary for love. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being uh, of the same mind, having the same love. And then in the very next verse, he talks about things that kill community and kill love. In verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility 
Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, this seems, you know, in, in the United States, we, we don't like people who put themselves on a pedestal. Like, we'll put people on a pedestal, but if somebody else does, it's like, we're going to knock them off the pedestal. We, we don't like pride. We would rather people kind of like at least make a proximity of humility. But in the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day, humility, humility was actually a despised trait. They, they viewed it as a sign of weakness. So it's not something they really talked about and liked, but in terms of um, what Paul is saying here, he's, talking, he's telling them to do something counter-cultural that goes back to the biblical call for us to love one another. Pride destroys love. Pride in all forms destroys unifying love. Listen to this quote. This is from John Templeton. He said, the opposite of humility is arrogance, the belief that we are wiser or better than others. Arrogance promotes separation rather than community. It looms like a brick wall between, uh, between us and those from whom we can learn. Pride breaks down the relationship. And, and C.S. Lewis tells us a little bit about why in uh, Mere Christianity. Uh, he, wrote, he said that pride is by nature competitive competitiveness is at the very heart of what pride is. And so he says this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. We see this. Uh, there's a comedian named Brian Regan. He, uh, he expressed this really well in one of his things several years ago. He, was, he said he was at a dinner party and uh, people were sharing their stories and he told a story about getting his wisdom teeth out. So he was getting out two of his wisdom teeth and you know he's a comedian so he probably like played it up and it was a really funny story. So when he got through telling his story, somebody at the table said that ain't nothing. Listen to my story and completely belittled and invalidated everything that Brian Regan had just said. And he said it, it felt like this guy was saying, here's your story, here's my story, you, me. Do you see the difference between you and me? And Brian Regan said, well, I do now. Is <laughs> it hard not to when you're pointing out this way? And he called this kind of perso persona the me monster. Is eventually it's kind of like, you, me, me. And he starts beating his chest. You know, it's like it's a chest beating thing for that. And honestly, we all engage in that to some degree. Um, Groucho Marx, remember that guy? Big mustache, and he had, the, he had to get the cigar. Um, he wrote this. He said, years ago, I tried to top everybody. Tried to you know, be in a conversation at dinner. He's always trying to one-up everybody, top everybody. Years ago, I tried to top everybody, but I don't do that anymore. I realized it was killing conversation. When you're always trying for a topper, you aren't really listening. But you're making it about you. It's about me at this moment. This is about me. And he brings up several things here in this passage in verses 3 and 4, specific, what we would call in the modern world, toxic behaviors. He says selfish ambition, which is really kind of a me-first attitude. Me first, before you. You back there, me forward. Uh, conceit. I'm the best one here. You, know, you listen to my advice, you do as I say, and everything will be great. You listen to me, and you will live. Uh, you'll live the good life. Uh, looking to your own interest. He says that's really about doing things my way. It's my way or the highway. 
And so these are all about self in comparison to other people. I get what I want. You don't get what you want. What I want and what I'm pursuing, this comes first. And that's at the heart of pride. So the person who is selfishly ambitious or conceited or, you know, it's, they want their own interest, they're always criticizing and squelching and belittling, and it kills the relationship. But you can't have a relationship with someone like that. And some of you are nudging your spouse right now. You need to stop that. We're not doing that in church, okay? Um, but some of you have, you know, in all seriousness, you've been in a bad relationship. Some of you have had that with parents. Some of you have had that with kids. Some of you have had that at work. Some of you have actually, unfortunately, experienced that in a church. That kind of behavior that squelches, destroys the relationship. Uh, he tells us, you know, that it damages and ruins community. We don't think about others at all because we're thinking about ourselves. My life is more important to yours. And so what Paul is saying here is, he says, in humility, consider others better than yourself because that's functionally what love is, right? It's saying to another person, you matter. You are, in, you are as important to me as I am to me. In fact, you are more important to me than I am to me. And we hear people say, I will die for you because we have that recognition that that's part of what love is. I put your well-being above my own. So what is humility? Um, what, it, what is it? In yesteryear, humility was seen almost as a permanent state of self-loathing. You know, you look down on yourself. And C.S. Lewis has been very helpful. And a lot of people quote from Mere uh, Christianity, uh, which he did a, a, kind of a long section on humility and pride. And he gave us a kind of a new way of thinking about it. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And what he meant by that is humility is a state where we're not constantly thinking about ourselves all of the time. Uh, we're able to think about other people. And he says there are two kinds of people that are prideful. Typically, when we think about the person who's prideful, um, we think about the person who's kind of, you know, standing there pontificating about things to you, telling you how to live your life. They're very showy about it. Um, it's the person who uh, seeks applause. They seek as a kind of an aphrodisiac. You know, it's like, I need the applause of other people. So in that way, that is a, um, kind of the opposite of humility, that kind of pride. But there's a counterfeit of pride that some people mistake for humility, and we can simply call that insecurity. You know, it's a person who doesn't want to put themselves forward. They want to keep their head down. They avoid the limelight, lest they face the awful non-reality that all the bad things about myself are actually true, right? But both groups of people think about themselves all the time. Why? Why is it that all of us think about ourselves all of the time? Let me help you think about that for a second. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got a call from my son. He was in the gym. Uh, not that son, but the one in college. And uh, he had, in, in his past, he's had two accidents where he's fallen and dislocated each shoulder at different times. And so he was in the gym. He's doing uh, dumbbells. And he said he felt his arm come out of the socket. It's kind of like, ow. Um, but since then, his shoulder is about all he can think about right? Sometimes it's just this low-grade ache that's here. Now, he had an MRI this week. It's a low-grade ache, and other times when he moves funny, he, can, he feels like it's about to pop out, and it's this sharp pain. So why does he think about 
himself all the time he think, because he's thinking about the pain that he's going through. Let me give you another example. Uh, when, my, uh, when my dad died, my mother could not bear to go into church by herself. And, and I didn't understand why because the assumption for me not ever having lost a spouse was that that's exactly the place where you should want to be. But I didn't realize that when she walked into the room, she felt like there had been something amputated from her. She lost a sense of her identity as she was John Speak's wife. And when she stepped into the room, she did not feel, uh, she felt diminished, she felt smaller, she felt uh, less significant, she felt weaker. She couldn't feel, she didn't feel strong anymore. And so coming into the room felt very painful because she was very aware of herself at that moment. Now, the reason I bring up these two examples is to help you think about what's happened to us, all of us, every single person who's ever lived and ever will live until Jesus comes back. And that is every single one of us has a God-sized wound on our soul. We were made to be, we were made by God. We were made to be like God. We were created in his image. We were created to know him, to relate to him, to serve him. Everything that it was about our identity and our purpose and our significance, the way we thought about ourselves in the world, we were created for God. And when sin happened, it was like the hurricane that came through. Things are broken. Our relationship with God is broken. So we're all like that, that live power line on the ground that's sparking that you can't go near because we cause damage in, because of the brokenness. And now, the, the desire to have, the prideful desire is just misplaced. We were found, made to find our identity in God, to find who we are. And that's extremely significant. I find my reality. I find my identity. I find my purpose, my significance as a person in him. And if that's broken, I still have that need. And I'm going to look for it in other things. This is what Richard Lovelace said about this process for us. He said, people who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously, radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order, in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. So what is he saying we do? We look to deal with the brokenness, the soul wound the God-shaped wound on all of our souls by comparing ourselves to other people and say, well, at least I'm not that. I had a conversation with a, somebody uh, really in the past couple of weeks. And we were just talking about how when our, our children make decisions and do things publicly that embarrass us as parents, all of a sudden there's an idol, there's a the source of pride that has to be challenged within us. And this, this person was saying that when our kids are, for many of us, when our kids are younger, we can control them a little bit and get them to do the things that we want to do. And we can compare ourselves to other parents who can't control their children. And we feel pretty good about ourselves. And he said, but when you find yourself unable to control your children, then your identity can't be in that. That can't be a source of pride for you anymore. You have to say, all I've got is Jesus. And I'm no better than any of the other parents out there who's just struggling to do the best they can. Right? You have to admit that. And part of this is also why um, 
religion doesn't really change people. Religion can't change people. It doesn't make people humble. Religion can't because religion is about what we're doing. So give a religious person a list of rules and they're going to keep them really well. But Jesus reserved his most severe criticisms for religious people who were keeping the rules and judging all the people who weren't. He said, you are white washed tombs full of dead men's bones. So religion can't do it. And so what we find is, how do you get humility? I've seen plenty of people try to imitate it, um, but then eventually it comes out in some way. So how do you get this? How do you get humility? Well, he tells us actually here in verse 1. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, that's it. Not from religion, you get it from Jesus, the gospel, which is something very, very different. So C.S. Lewis defined humility as not as uh, thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Paul is pushing us to see that humility comes not by thinking of yourself less and not thinking less of yourself. That's a fruit. But humility really comes by thinking of Christ more. Thinking of Christ more, being rooted in the gospel, being rooted in Jesus, being in Christ. He's saying you have this experience of this in your life. Uh, Louis Giglio, some of you may have heard of him. He speaks at college conferences a lot. He said, humility is not a character trait to develop. You can't make it happen for yourself. Humility is not a character trait to develop. It's the natural byproduct of being with Jesus. That's it. That's, that's how you get it, is you, you're, you're with Jesus. You spend time with Jesus. And in this passage, he tells us three ways, three, three ways how you get this in Jesus. The first one is it's a, the example of Jesus. Verse 5, he, and following, he gives this great example of Jesus, but he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Though he's truly the greatest, he humbled himself as our servant. That's the example of Jesus and so for a lot of people, when we see Jesus, we are humbled in ourselves of saying, if he's the greatest and he humbles himself and acts as a servant, then maybe I have something to learn from that. If I believe in him and I want to follow his way, I've got something I can learn from this. So uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, she's getting a lot of uh, quotes when people are talking about her faith and, and uh, how she lived. Uh, she uh, said this at one point. She said, for me... The life of Jesus Christ is an inspiration and an anchor in my life, a role model of reconciliation and forgiveness. He stretched out his hands in love, acceptance and healing. Christ's example has taught me to seek to respect and value all people. So there you have it. It's an, he's an example. And when you see Jesus, I want that kind of beautiful life. I want to live that way. I want to live an act of service. So that's one thing is the example of Jesus but also the, the exaltation of Jesus is uh, we read in the passage that therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place. Because Jesus took the nature of a servant and he died on our behalf, he is exalted to the highest place. And I was thinking about this week, and we're actually going to look at uh, verses 5 through 11 next week in more detail. Just talking about the, Jesus being fully God and fully man and what does that mean. So we're going to look at that in more detail. But I was reflecting on this this week is what happens when you have someone who wants to be in the highest place because they have a huge ego 
and the need for applause. You don't want that person to be in power because it's all about that person's ego and power. So who does God put on the throne of the cosmos? The greatest who sought to be the least. Jesus is the one that God has put on the throne of power. Uh, Jesus said this in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And then he says this in John 14, 9. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So what does that mean? It means that the God of the universe is a God who is gentle and lowly and humble in character, who he is. That means that the things that we often prize and value, the live wire that's on the ground that's sparking everywhere, that attracts a lot of attention, that's dangerous. And what God is calling us to be and to do is to be like Christ and to be like the one that he exalted and said, he's the one who's worthy to sit on the throne of the cosmos. But that's not really how you get humility. That's a good example and a good telling us of, how, of what it's about. But how do you actually get this? Because you can see the example of Jesus and not follow it. You can see Jesus exalted and not really uh, be like him. So how do you get this? And so Paul begins with, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... And what he's telling us here is the gospel is not just the way that you get into the right, a right relationship with God. The gospel, believing in Jesus, is actually the way that you, uh, it's the power for living a renewed relationship with God in the gospel. That's how you do it, is by saying, I am rooted and established. I am in Christ. See, pride creates the illusion uh, of glory in relationship to other people is I'm better than these other people. It, it makes a sense of like, I'm, I'm righteous. I have what it takes. But if you're not humble with other people, you probably haven't been humble with God. But when you see who you are before God at the cross of Christ, then that makes you a truly humble person so that you're humble with other people. G.K. Chesterton is a famous Catholic thinker and uh, I think it was the early part of the 20th century, a uh, newspaper in London asked the question, and asked for reader responses, asked the question, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote back, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. And that's the attitude of someone who's really grasped the mess of Jesus. Instead of saying, everybody else is a problem with the world that needs to be dealt with, to say, I'm a problem. I'm the problem in my family. I'm the problem in my friendships. I'm the problem. The church planter is the biggest problem in the church plant. Um, to be able to say this is a reality as far as I see it. And this is Paul's point, is not focusing on other people, on their failings, but being deeply honest with our own and seeing the awfulness of our own sin by seeing Jesus dying on the cross. Our sin was so bad that Jesus had to die. But his love was so great that he wanted to. Jesus died for our sins because he loved us. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was stripped naked so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. Jesus Christ exchanged places with us. He takes what we deserve and he gives us what he deserved. Jesus was brought to a devastating end so that we could have a new beginning with God. 
He was opposed so that we could be embraced. The exalted son died a humiliating death so that we could live an exalted life restored to God the Father. So the cross is not simply the way that we enter into a relationship with God. It's the way that we deal with our pride delusion. The cross is the only way. So the Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved that he wanted to. And this leads to a deep humility and a deep confidence at the same time. It's yes, I'm broken and I'm sinful and I'm fallen, but the greatest person in the cosmos loved me enough to die for me, to rescue me. I matter because I matter to him. I don't have to prove that. He's proved it when he died on the cross. But there's a second thing that he's also done that makes us, uh, it gives us something so good that nothing we ever do here could topple, uh, could, could top it. Not at all. There's no Groucho Marx topper for this one. And it's this, is we experience Jesus giving us his glory, right? We see our sin, but this, this process, this thing that Jesus did where it's called the great exchange, where I give him my sin and he gives me his glory. So this comes from uh, Rejoicing in uh, Christ by a writer named Michael Reeves. And I love the way he put this, so I'm just gonna read it uh, as it's written. Do I, did I send you a quote for this and guys in the back? Okay, good. So Martin Luther was the first of the reformers to pick up on this theme of the, the joyful exchange, telling the gospel as the story of a king, representing Jesus, marrying a poor girl of ill repute, representing us. At their wedding, she would say to him, all that I am, I give to you. And all that I, am, all that I have, I share with you. And in that moment, she shares with him all her debts and shame. Then the king would reply, all that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. At which the wretched girl becomes the queen, and all the kingdom is hers. Just so our great bridegroom has taken all our sin, our death, our judgment, and he shares with us all of his life and perfect righteousness. He has become poor that we might share his riches. It is the great marriage swap, or what Luther called the joyful exchange. Christ is one with his people, and so all theirs is his, and all his is there. theirs. At the cross, I see how sinful I am. But at the cross, I see how loved and cherished I am, and myself becomes healed. I have something that is so bad that nothing that anyone ever says to me can be worse than that. So there's a, uh, I think it's Epictetus. He's this old Greek philosopher. He said, if someone comes and tells you my other flaws, it's because he didn't know me so well. Because if he knew me better, he would tell you all of my other flaws as well. We have them. And the gospel enables us to be honest about that. But at the same time, there's something that is so good that if I have it, nothing I do can ever top it. Nothing anyone ever says to me can top it. Because I have Christ himself. And this creates this utter confidence before God. Thomas Merton was a spiritual guide in the last century, and he wrote, humility is being precisely the person you are before God. I'm a sinner, but I've been justified. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said, I sometimes think that the very essence of the whole Christian position 
and the secret of a successful spiritual life is just to realize two things. I must have complete, absolute confidence in God and no confidence in myself. That's humility. Humility is an experience of God's greatness. It's an experience of God's love and forgiveness. You don't always have to be first. You don't always have to be right. You don't always have to win awards. All verdicts are handed over to God and your connection to God is what makes you matter. It gives you your sense of worth as a person. Failure doesn't devastate you. Criticism doesn't devastate you, nor do you always have to critique other people to feel better about yourself or compete with other people to feel uh, better about yourself. Um, humility is comfortable in second place or third place or even hundredth place. Humility can face trials with joy. Humility can accept rebuke with gratitude. Humility can respond gently even when wronged. Humility serves without recognition or applause because you know him who loves you so deeply at great cost. Do you have that kind of humility? If you say yes, then you don't have it. <laughs> I don't have that yet. I like to closely approximate that but that's just my insecurity, right? So what I'm hoping, what I'm asking is for God to take this and to weave it into my soul. So if you're a Christian, let me uh, invite you to ask God to strip away all the false confidence and to take away the insecurity and say, let me find my identity fully and completely in Christ so that I don't even think about myself at all because I'm free of that. I've been healed. I don't feel my shoulder. I don't feel the amputation. I I am whole. But if you're not a Christian, maybe today is the day and time for you to come humbly to God and say, I need that. I can see that that's what's going on in my heart. I think about myself all the time. I'm always defensive. I'm always argumentative. I always feel the need to put people in their place. And I don't need to do that. I have one who has given something so good that it heals me. Maybe today's the day. Let me pray for us. There's so much here. There's so much in, in church history about humility and the necessity for it. And Father, we, we admit to you, we admit to you, Lord Jesus, we admit to you, Spirit. We admit to you that we are products of our own day and age um, we have taken a lot of the worst things of our culture and the pride, the arrogance the demands, the putting ourselves before other people um, the rudeness we show other people because we think that we're more important than they are the way we criticize people in the grocery store and complain about things to them we're eat up with this and so what we ask I see that you would give us such a vision of Christ that we would be free, that we would see one who is so lovely that all the things I've wanted for myself or I realize are found in him, he replaces them all. To see one who served me so well at cost himself that I want to serve in the same way. To find in him one who heals me, who fixes me, who repairs everything about me so I'm not this live wire uh, that's dangerous to the people around me. But again, attached to God and finding my identity and, and uh, source in him. 
Would you bless all of us this way? Would you be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.